You are listening to the Bay City Church sermon series, God the Fairy Tale, a series designed to answer questions about Jesus, religion, and the Bible. For more video and audio resources, visit baycity.church. Week 7, God the Fairy Tale, answering the question, isn't the Bible a flawed book with contradictions? Now, it's pretty arrogant to say I'm going to answer that question. So, I'm not going to answer the question but I'm gonna to respond to it. And here's my heart behind this. I hope that we will be, I will be able to hopefully give a few different answers to a few things, but that also this would spark a lot of questions in your heart and maybe a lot of conversations amongst you and your friends that you actually, this might actually be a launching point to you getting to have these big conversations with people. So I hope I'm, for one, able to answer some of your concerns and questions about the Bible here. If you're like, hey, I'm not a believer, I'm just kind of checking this thing out. I hope we can answer a few of these. But then for those that maybe feel like, hey, I am a Christian, I wanna know more, I hope I give you a few things that you're able to, um, to then explore with other people and maybe unpack. And I want to give you a couple of resources before we start. Um, these are two books that I think would be really helpful for you. Uh, I don't know, you know where you're from or what sort of church you go to, but I love lots of books, and I just, they absolutely help solidify my thinking in the Word of God. But we have a website called baycity.church and slash resources. You can find both of these books there. This here is called The Question of the Canon. It's a book about how we got the Bible the way it is. I encourage you to read that, Question of the Canon. And uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Is it, don't be fooled by the weird title. It's actually a really, really deep theological apologetics book. A book, apologetics is really just helping you explain uh, the Bible to somebody. It's helping defend the faith, right? So I encourage you to maybe look at getting those books. We have the Amazon links at our basicity.church slash resources page. I'd encourage you, and if you have questions about them afterward, for sure, let me know. Cool. All right, as you unlock your Bible, I'm gonna kind of get rolling on this. Has anyone ever started the sentence with these two words? I think. I think. Yes, yes. Hopefully, maybe all of us, if you think, you probably have started the sentence with I think. Now, most people do this now. In fact, I was uh, at a coffee shop recently the other day, and there were two, I think, teenage girls talking, and they were going back and forth with their I think statements. I think Justin Bieber's lame. I actually think he's coming back. I don't know if I like him as much as I used to. I don't think he's going to live past 30. Those were some of the, the conversations around uh, these I think statements. And usually when we used to use I think statements, we used to use them in that sort of context. So we'd say things like, I think this band stinks, or I think Minship ice cream is the best ice cream. That's how we used to use it, which by the way, it is objectively the best ice cream. But now we, what, you disagree with my I think statement? Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm harmed, I'm, I'm shamed. You'll understand why I said that in a second. Nonetheless, now we use our I think statements with much larger things, much larger things. Like, I think the meaning of life is blank. I think the way to God is blank. I think the highest moral good is blank. Now these are really giant, giant answers to questions that we begin with a statement like I think. But um, that is exactly the, the sort of cultural environment we are in today. And today, you are absolutely not allowed to refute someone's I think statement. I mean, if someone were to say I think dot, 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 and you were to go, ah, know if that's true, World War III would ensue, especially on social media, right? Especially when you're not face-to-face -face with people. If you were to refute someone's opinions, I mean, this is, this is devastating, 
around your, your, social, your social media platforms. It is absolutely, and a lot, and, and today it's, it's actually, people don't actually seek disagreements as much on purpose unless they find themselves in them online, but this actually does have a lot to do with social media. Recent studies have shown that we are experiencing less empathy for people we disagree with than we ever have ever before. And social media has a lot to do with this because social media's algorithms will carefully curate your feed for you. So it will determine your likes and your values and things you purchase, and it will craft for you a feed, a Twitter feed, an Instagram feed, uh, a Facebook feed, including ads, and it will craft a reality for you that you will begin to believe and, and bring in. And so when someone else disagrees with you, say, let's say politically, for instance, you'll say, I can't believe somebody would agree with anything on the other side of my opinion. I mean, look at reality, it's clear. Well, the other person actually gets a very different version of reality because of social media. We actually can't imagine why someone would differ with us, but actually we're getting very, very different views of reality, and therefore we lack empathy for one another because we just can't believe why they would believe. Furthermore, that trickles into real life. We don't seek disagreements or healthy, uh, healthy uh, conflict or conflict resolution any longer. We now look for things like echo chambers. You know what an echo chamber is? You talk in an echo chamber, and what do you hear? You hear, you hear a repeat of what you just said. And so uh, bleeding out of social media, oftentimes we find friendships and relationships and, and in conversations, and we will find people that kind of agree with what we have to say. It's very difficult to have deep friendships with people that just don't agree with us socially, politically, culturally, religiously, all those things. Very hard to find. And in fact, even if we do disagree with one another, we'll just kind of parrot one another in conversation saying, oh yes, totally, oh absolutely, yes, yes, of course, yeah, and we'll, we'll just agree with each other. Of course, unless of course you're at Thanksgiving dinner with your family, then all bets are off. <laughs> but again, no one's allowed to refute an, this statement that begins with I think. And here's why, here's, here's my pi hypothesis, okay? When we say I think, we're actually appealing to something. We're appealing to our authority. We're actually making appeal to what we trust the most. Okay, so when we say I think in a sentence, what we're saying is I think based on the blogs I've read, the podcasts I've listened to, the YouTube videos I've watched, maybe some books I've read and even my schooling, I believe based on my own knowledge and the socialization, the way I was raised, that X is true or X is false. So we're actually appealing to authority. Now, the Christian position should be not to say I think when it comes to uh, ultimate, ultimate subjects like God, the idea is not to say I think, it's to say the Bible says. So if we start a sentence with the Bible says this about the truth, what we're doing is we're actually appealing to an authority. Now that may be so old fogey for some of us in here because today what we do is we like to say, no, no, well I think that, you know, I think that. And we make these uh, I think statements that no one can refute and as a result nobody ever changes or grows because all of us can form our own realities with our own thoughts. But the Bible is actually saying actually I, the, I exist, the Bible, over the top of all of these lowercase a authorities. I exist as my own authority, and we don't like that oftentimes. Now, the Christian position is that the Bible is the ultimate authority and that all other positions, including our own, pale in comparison to it. Now, that's not popular. We understand that. We know the predominant position in Western society, that's our society, is to believe a collection of knowledge and information that we've gathered ourselves, and that's our highest authority. But the Bible, Christianity, says that the Bible's actually correct. Oh, my goodness, I can just hear the, the, feel the gravity suck out of the room when you even say that. Well, why do Christians think this? 
That's because Christians believe that the Bible is breathed out by God, right? Breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete for every good work. Christians believe that the Bible, this book here, like this literal book, was breathed out by God himself, that, that the historic Christian position is that God spoke this word into existence through a collection of 40 authors, 66 different books over a course of roughly 1,500 to 2,000 years it was written, that God wrote this book. And so the reason why Christians say, man, or people would ask Christians, like, why do you believe the Bible can be the highest authority? That's because the Bi- we believe the Bible actually uh, was written by God himself, right? This isn't just a book about God, it's written by God, it's authored by God through people, okay? So that's, why Christ, that's where Christians get this from. Now, our I think statements in the Bible are at war for something, and that's why we get so uncomfortable when we hear this, and it, the, what we're at war for is authority. This is the big word here, authority. Who is our highest authority? And what I mean by that is, what do we trust above all else? What do we know above all else? What do we go to when we're confused? Is it our information? Is it our own growth? Is it our own family and friends and our own line of thinking, the modern West? Or is it something else, like the Bible or another religious book, okay? Now, there is a fundamental difference between giving ourselves authority and giving God the authority. And I want to break that down for you here before we can answer our question, isn't the Bible a flawed book? Now, there's two separate categories. They're called speculation and revelation. You're going to figure out what side you're on here in a second. Uh, Speculation and revelation. Speculation is the human attempt to ascertain the things of the world. It's the human attempt to figure out who God is, why God exists, why is he here, why am I here, and what am I supposed to do? It's human attempt to figure out humanity and sociology, psychology, biology, philosophy, all fall into the realm of us trying to figure out and make sense of the world that we live in. Revelation, though, from a Christian perspective, is what God says about himself, okay? Revelation is what God says about himself. Us in the world, he's, he's revealing that to us by the scriptures. Revelation is God speaking, breathing into the world what is, okay? Now, just like we often like to appeal to our own authority, people will often say, you know, I feel like the Bible's kind of ridiculous because I'm supposed to believe the Bible's true because it says it is. You know, I just don't know if I can get with that. We actually do the same thing with our I think statements is I think that the world is this because blank, why? Well, that's just, you know, that's my opinion, that's my interpretation. Well, it's the same exact thing. And so the Bible's saying that I'm true because I say it is based on my facts, and we are often saying I'm true, I'm right, based on whatever, whatever I've learned in my own life as well. We're saying the same things. Okay, so the question becomes, who's right? Is the Bible correct, or are we correct, or are we both correct? Like, what's the answer here, okay? What is the answer? Now, many of us will challenge the Bible with our I think statements, and we sometimes don't have a lot of information about the Bible, so it's helpful to help let the Bible speak for itself if we're going to form an opinion about it. You know, uh, studies show that most 20-year-old 20, most men have formed their theological view statements from one source and one source only, YouTube. YouTube is where you got your theology, okay? It's like, ah, this cool teacher seems pretty cool. I don't know, he's sitting on a stool, seems pretty hipster, seem to like him. I'm going to form my opinion of theology based on that guy. Well, that's probably an okay secondary source, but the first source 
is probably from the source itself, right? If all scripture is breathed by God and profitable, we should go to it first. But a lot of people will get caught up in silly debates and talks about the Bible. I don't know if it's real. I'm not sure if we should really believe it. Do we even have the full Bible? And you know what? I want to comfort you. Well, even though many of us think that we're a lot smarter than people were last generation, by the way, that will continue. Our kids will be smarter than us, right? Wait till you have kids, you'll go, eh, it's not true, okay? It's just gonna keep happening, okay? So we're always gonna think we're the smartest generation in the room. This has actually been going on for years. We've been having this conversation for years. Actually, it's written about in the Bible. First Timothy uh, chapter one, verse three, listen to this. This is a Paul, an old seasoned veteran, talking to a young pastor. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It's hard to do these days. Nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You hear what, what, we're, what we're reading here, Paul, what Paul's saying? He's saying that people go on YouTube, learn a little bit about something, and then become experts in it. That doesn't happen today though, really, right? Like, you ever heard of an Instagram influencer? You learn a little bit and you just amplify it to the world. What an expert. Some of you are in here and you're mad. You're never coming back. Is that what's going on? Okay, fair enough. Sorry, Instagram influencers. You are awesome. Praise God, I'm glad you're doing it. Nonetheless, when we learn a little bit about something that's really massive, we can get dangerous with the way we're thinking. We can begin to twist, turn, malign, and change some of the, the viewpoints of actually what we're learning from the Bible. And so we have to be careful. We have to be very careful. So if, 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 if we wanna really form an opinion on this, we need to know what the Bible says. We need to know what the Bible says about itself being true and what it says about it being contradictory. You have to understand that first. So I'm going to give you the historic Christian position on the Bible's authority. Okay, so get ready for a big phrase. It's called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. I'm going to explain this for you. Verbal. Each word and sentence in the Bible is chosen by God. Verbal. Each word is chosen by God. All of the Bible... Everything written in it is chosen by God, okay? Plenary, this means all words are chosen by God, not just some, not just the words we like, right? Remember, first Tim, or Second Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Not just what we feel like is valuable for us in the moment. Not what we just feel like is useful for us in our cultural context. Not just what we want to believe, but all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, I've mentioned this before, but a guy named Thomas Jefferson, you've probably heard of him, he didn't believe all of the Bible either. And when he, got, when he, when he, went, when he was working uh, for the government a long time ago, he took the Bible and took a razor blade to it and chopped out all of the parts he didn't like. And he published the remaining copy, or at least tried to publish the remaining copy, and it was called The Philosophy of Jesus Christ. And he essentially removed everything he thought didn't really, probably wasn't true, or maybe was maybe added. He took it all out based on his own, whatever he decided. And he published the book, and there are like oddball copies of it around that you can try to find, but it's really interesting. And we kind of look at that like, man, that's nuts, but we kind of do the same thing. We kind of do the same thing. Yeah, we don't have a razor blade or anything like that, but we, 
We might go to the scripture and go, eh, I don't know, that's probably an old thing. I don't know if that's probably true. I mean, it's up for debate. And we will look for reasons to try to avoid certain parts of the Bible. Now, if you think the Bible only has really easy things to hear, you're going to miss out on a lot of what God has to say. If God was big enough to write the Bible and big enough to create the world, let's assume he is for a second, then he's probably big enough to have things written in the Bible that you don't understand that probably have good reasons to be there. It's possible, okay? So verbal, all, each word, plenary, all words, and then inspiration. Inspiration is this quality of being breathed out by, by God himself, that God supernaturally guided the authors of the Bible to write exactly what he wanted them to communicate. Everything in Scripture is there because that's what God desired to say to humanity. Now, Scripture records that if a guy's going to do this like a God, he's going to form the Bible, that he should also be good. And the Bible says God's a good person. 1 Timothy uh, 1-2 says, in, it, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So God here is saying, I don't lie. I don't lie. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. That every word that's spoken from the mouth of God is proven true. That all of the prophecies and, all, and, the and the progressive revelation of God's work from Genesis to Revelation, all of the different things have proven true over the course of history. That he said a Messiah would come and save humanity, and he came. Right? That God, every word of God proves true. Now listen, I know that people who are not believers in Christianity... They don't believe the Bible is the highest authority. Like, I understand that. I, I get that. And maybe we don't believe it as the highest authority, and we'll lift other things as our highest authority. Maybe sometimes our I think statements. But sometimes it's philosophers like Kant and Nietzsche and, and, and Hume. Uh, religions like Islam or Judaism. Uh, even modern thought like scientific rationalism. Sometimes even things like culture, our feelings, or even politics. will ultimately get the final say-so on our decision-making. Understand that. But sometimes people have genuine concerns with validating the Bible as the highest authority, right? I mean, it makes sense. You want me to give everything to believing this book? Well, I got some thoughts and concerns, and not everyone is looking at the Bible cockeyed with some like ulterior motive, like they don't like Jesus. Maybe actually, it's just a confusing book to understand. So, let's answer a couple of these. Point two here, many concerns about the Bible's authority are legitimate, but can't be answered but can be answered. Now listen, I'm not going to answer every concern we have with God's authority of the Bible. I'm not gonna be able to do that. But I will give you a couple quick points, and I hope that this will bring clarity and then also spark questions for conversation later, okay? So you might not get the full answer you might be looking for today. But I often hear this phrase, the Bible we have isn't even the Bible. Has anyone here said that? Has anyone heard this question? The Bible, I heard, it's not even actually the Bible. Like, I don't even know what the Bible was supposed to be, but this isn't it. Maybe we don't have a lot of thoughts behind that. Maybe you don't have a lot of evidence behind that, but I, we, I've heard it said. You ever play the game telephone when you were a kid? No, because you had iPhones when you grew up, a lot of you. But back then we were just playing with rocks and sticks. No, I'm just kidding, but we were. And we played telephone. And telephone is this game, right, where you whisper into your buddy's ear and... You say, you're told a word from the teacher or the first person, and then by the end of the line of telephone, you all whisper in each other's ear. Usually the word comes out different at the end, right? So you start with, um, you know, purple, and then by the end of it, you get to like purple monkey dishwasher. And you're like, what? Who added dishwasher into this? None of you wash dishes, right? Something like that, right? 
Um, well, a lot of people think the Bible translations are like that. We find the first copy of the translation, and then we translate the next translation off of that translation, and the translation off of this one, translation on translation on translation on translation, language on language on language on language. And so what we have is really this like um, goulash of um, a bunch of different people's scribal errors and a bunch of just a bunch of mixed um, words and maybe even some lies scattered in there. Well, that's actually not how we translate the Bible. In fact, we, we, what, what archaeologists, I say we like I'm out there digging up old Bibles, but archaeologists and ancient text scholars, what they do is they compile all of the texts they have. They find as many texts as they can possibly find, so, and, they, and they find as many as they can. They, they, pile, they make a giant pile of their texts, most of them trying to find the original language of them, and then they will compare and contrast and find the differences based over time, and if there are differences, they discard them, and they take the earliest manuscripts as possible. And so typically, you're, what you're reading is a translation, like this uh, modern English Standard Version, is a translation off the earliest transcripts that we have in the original language, and then filled in along the way as we have fragments missing and such. Okay? The Bible, furthermore, has an abundance of copies in manuscripts. More than any other ancient book in existence in history, the Bible has more ancient manuscripts. By and far. Vastly, and, and so you would be able to take all of these transcripts together and then decide what's changed. And this is very different from modern religions like Mormonism, where if you were to get an original 1830 copy of the Book of Mormon, you would plop this down and see a vastly different text from the current Book of Mormon. And you'll be able to compare these two and go, man, this book is way different. What we do is we take our earliest manuscripts and compare them with our newest and make sure that there's continuity there. This isn't like a building on building and building on top of different, different texts and texts and texts over the course of history. That's just simply untrue. Furthermore, we have roughly 5,700 copies of Greek manuscripts in, in ancient history of the New Testament. Nine, 5,700 copies in the original Greek language. We have an additional 9,000 some odd copies of the, Old Test, or the New Testament in other languages like Latin. We've got almost 15,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament that we look at. 15,000, and they're discovering more and more and more every day. In fact, recently, uh, scientists just found a, in a cave, found an entire Leviticus scroll in a cave that was burnt. The entire scroll dated in, within the first century. Over 2,000 years old. I don't know if you have any books. They don't last that long, okay? Like, I've got a bunch of books. They're not that, they don't rely, like, if you have your copy of Twilight on your shelf, you're like, man, I've had this eight years. It's still going strong. Try 2,000, okay? It's a, books get old quick. Five, pe people's houses catch on fire, and yet to have these copies preserved is quite amazing. Now, no other ancient text has anywhere near 15,000 uh, manuscripts, not even close. You guys believe in Caesar? You believe Caesar existed? Probably heard, learned about Caesar in like class at some point. We have more evidence that Jesus Christ existed than we do Caesar in ancient documents. By, by and far, not even counting the Bible. The ancient work that has the second most manuscripts preserved over history is Homer's Iliad. 643 copies of Homer's Iliad compared to 15,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. That is, that is outrageous. In fact, most ancient historians, Christian and non, call the, the Bible a goldmine for ancient history manuscripts. 
There are so many of them. Not only does the Bible have the most ancient manuscripts, it also has the earliest copies closest to the original writings. We have copies of the New Testament that date within 25 years of the original writings of the New Testament. Now, just to compare that, there is a 500-year gap between when Homer was supposedly wrote the Iliad and to what we have, and a close to 1,000-year gap between the, uh, when Caesar apparently lived and writings about him that were written. A 1,000-year gap. Now, a lot can change in a 1,000 years, but 25, that's pretty crazy. So now we synthesize all of these copies and texts, and we also have extra biblical, that's books written about the Bible that quote the Bible. We also take those quotes as well and compare those to what the actual Bible says as well, and then we formulate what we know as the Bible. That is quite a bit of work. No other book in history has gone, undergone such scrutiny and upheld it ever. This is, it's the most published book in human history, and yet it, it still passes this really important non-Christian archaeological test. Okay, another question we have. What about all the errors in the Bible? What about all the errors? Some critics will say that there are roughly 200,000 errors in the Bible. Now, first, let me say, when, when we get these giant numbers of 200,000, we're looking at 15,000 manuscripts, 200,000 errors. Now, the overwhelming vast majority of all of these changes, these errors in the Bible, are punctuation. Commas, periods, and misspellings. Now, I've never written the whole Bible, um, but I feel like my hand would cramp at some point, and I get a little sloppy. Like, I can barely write a sentence today because I type so much, and my kids got me drawing, my hand's cramping off of one car and one rocket ship I'm drawing. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to try to write the whole Bible without any mistakes, and yet the overwhelming vast majority of these mistakes are grammatical, commas, periods, and misspellings. Furthermore, no historical book in all of human history is more authenticated than the Bible. Princeton professor Bruce Metzger, he says this, the the Marab Harata of Hinduism, sorry, is copied with only 90% accuracy. It's ancient book, only 90% accuracy. Homer's Iliad, if you've ever read it, 95% accuracy. 95% accuracy. The Bible, the New Testament, is 99.5% accurate. And they've determined that this 0.5% inaccuracies does not change a single doctrinal statement. All by, so it's not as if they said, Jesus is God, and that was kind of scratched in. No, we're talking question marks, we're talking periods, we're talking commas, the equivalent of these things in the texts, okay? Sir, Frederick Kenyon, a British paleographer and ancient manuscript scholar, he says this about the Bible. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance of the the text of the Bible is certain. Especially is this the case with the New Testament. The number of the manuscripts of the New Testament of early translations from it and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. This is a very, very strong case for an ancient book. By the way, they didn't have like iPhones. They couldn't go like, there's Jesus, yo, and film him and post it on. Like that wasn't a thing. Okay, so he's like, well, I don't see any video footage. Well, you're never going to see video footage of it. It's just not going to happen. Okay, question for you. Who won the Super Bowl 100 years ago? You don't know. Did the Super Bowl happen 100 years ago? No, it did not. 
okay? You don't know. You don't know because there was no video of it. You don't know. But there are other ways to prove things other than video recordings, right? And in ancient history, this is the way we recorded things. People wrote them down. Historical eyewitness accounts were the way we learned things. And that's the way we learn all of our ancient history, not just about the scripture. Last thing people will say, or one of the things that people say was, it's, an old, it's a, got a bunch of contradictions in it. It's got a bunch of contradictions. And you hear a lot of times people will say, you know, the Bible says you're not supposed to eat shrimp. And the Bible says you're not supposed to wear like two types of the same cloth or trim your beard on specific days. But you trim your beard, you wear two different types of cloth, therefore the Bible is wrong. Okay, let me just help, help, hopefully try to put this quickly to bed um, for time's sake. The Old Testament ceremonial laws do not contradict the New Testament laws of Jesus. Okay, they do not contradict each other. The, there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. There's ceremonial law, there is civil law, and then there is moral law. Okay, these are the three types of law given down from God to the Israelites. Okay, all of these laws that we point out are all ceremonial laws. They're all ceremonial and some civil laws. We talk about the hand-washing ceremonies and um, how, to, how to clean uh, or prepare a, an offering, like a, an animal sacrifice, and wearing different types of clothing. These laws were given down from God to an, a specific type of people in a specific time in history. These laws were given down to the ancient Israelites in the desert, given to them specifically. These laws were not written for modern Western society in 2019. These laws were not. In fact, these laws were mit, uh, done for, for, for one big reason, to distinguish ancient Israel from Gentiles in the rest of the world. God wanted his people to be distinct. He also wanted them to be safe. So many of the ceremonial and civil laws are about safety regarding uh, dealing with each other and also regard with dealing with different animals and things of that nature. These laws were all given to ancient Israel to distinguish them, but even the Old Testament writers knew and New Testament writers confirm that all of these things were pointing towards something coming. That the Old, the Old Testament was writ, wasn't written once and for all for everyone to believe. In fact, it was given in the, in the context of a covenant, which is an agreement between God and people. And God gives this covenant to them, and, uh, and throughout history, God reveals that he fulfills his part of the covenant by sending Jesus Christ then to come and fulfill the law. Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, I do not come to abolish the law. It's not, we're not getting rid of it. I've come to fulfill it. Not a, a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law. Jesus is going to fulfill all of that law. These laws were pointing towards Christ, and because now Jesus is now here, we no longer are held to these ceremonial laws. So if you or your friends say, hey, we, the Bible says can't eat shellfish, therefore I can do whatever I want, the Bible's not true, we'd say, well, read the Bible in context. Actually, the Bible's a story from Genesis to Revelation, revealing God, slowly revealing himself over the course of history, and he reveals himself in history to Israel at that time in Exodus, and he's revealed himself in Jesus today, okay? Very different, very different. Um, furthermore, people will say, man, the Gospels, I feel like there's, I feel like there's multiple stories of the gospel, four gospels, and like sometimes they tell the same story. Sometimes they tell the same story, but they tell it differently. So like, you know, in this story, in this account, there's two blind men Jesus approaches, and in this one, there's only one blind man. Therefore, the Bible's ridiculous. Well, not exactly. In fact, in the court of law, that's actually, th those pieces of uh, eyewitness accounts are not seen as contradictory. They're seen as complementary. 
In fact, in the court of law, you can't expect at all people's eyewitness accounts to be the same. In fact, it's actually better that they are slightly different. In fact, if all four gospels were almost exactly the same, uh, in the court of law, you could put this before a court and they would probably declare collusion, that they got together, they cooked up their story, and, and they made this thing up. Shame on me, I got caught stealing when I was eight years old. Yeah, it's kind of sad, I'm a, I'm a murderer. Um, I stole a pack of Reese's when I was eight from a grocery store. You all looking at me in such a different light now, you're ashamed of me, look at you. Like I knew this, I knew it, look at him. Um, I, this is how, so I was eight, I was with some, my cousins, we stole some candy, okay? It was dumb, and maybe I was seven, you know, and we stole some candy. And we got caught and we went up to the room. And what do they, what's the first thing they do? They're gonna question us. They question us. They put us in the room and as we're walking back to the security, we're trying to get our story straight. You know what I mean? Like, who did what? You know what I mean? Like, uh, we, and so we get up there and two of the three of us give the exact same story. Now, the poli- trained police officer is like, now there's no way that's possible because there's too much going on and too much stress to happen for people to give the exact same story. It's, it's almost impossible. It had to be cooked up. That's an easy defense for this part. But another thing people will say is that the Bible's an old book. It's old. I mean, we update our textbooks. We should at least begin to update our Bible. Now, what would this demonstrate if we updated our Bible just as much as we updated um, a textbook or like another modern, like the Book of Mormon gets updated? How would, we, how would that look? Who would be in charge of, by the way, updating this such book? Would you want the government in charge of updating the Bible? <laughs> I don't want the government in charge of anything these days, let alone updating the Bible, okay? Who gets to decide? You? Political action committee? Who? Scholars and theologians? Who? If we update the Bible, that enters the realm back into the realm of speculation, the human attempt to ascertain what God wants us to know at this point in history. We update it with culture? Well. We also used to do a lot of things culturally back in the day we don't do anymore. Has anyone put asbestos in their house or eat le- paint with lead paint? No, Does anyone s- not a lot of smokers around these days anymore. Uh, in the early 1900s and late 1800s, our number one cough medicine included uh, radium. Radium, cannabis, and morphine were the three top ingredients in your cough syrup. Give your son a little bit of this cough syrup. That'll knock him out. <laughs> that was your great-grandfather, okay, doing that, drinking radium, okay? That's what they did. Should we just do that? Well, then what if we're wrong? We're probably wrong about a lot of things we don't understand right now, right? So we shouldn't update our Bible. By the way, God's word doesn't pass away ever. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of God endures forever. Matthew 24, Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus is assured that his word will continue throughout history, and that includes us trying to get involved with changing it. And then lastly, people will say, man, we we just need modern thinkers to really help us understand God. Listen, nothing else is necessary. The word of God is complete. The word of God is fully complete. We do not need modern thinkers to help bring uh, out and add to more truths in it. Now, great speakers, teachers, uh, family members, Bible study leaders, great. We need people to point towards the scripture, but what we don't need is an extra book that adds to the scripture. 
A lot of times we actually end up with that as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. It says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. We start adding to and changing, twisting and turning the Bible. We start all of a sudden creating, creating factions and cults and debates about around the scriptures. Be careful the latest guru, podcast, leader, um, book writer, even pastor and teacher that begins to add and change God's word. Be wary of that. Even in churches like ours, test me, test every preacher by its foundation. Uh, cults, religious, uh, crazy thinkings, offshoots of Christianity, all of the, a lot of these things began around the context of a church. Just because someone calls themselves a pastor or has an authority and writes books doesn't mean that you should be listening to them. Test them by the Bible. Third thing we need, we need to know about the Bible is that the Bible upholds its own authority. It upholds its own authority. So we're not saying something about the Bible that it doesn't say about itself. Some people will say, oh, Jesus never said he was a, really a, a teacher, never said he was God. We just kind of added that. Well, actually, the Bible says it all over the place. The Bible upholds its own authority. Scripture confirms Scripture with prophecy, but the Bible predicts a lot of things in the Old Testament that come true in the New Testament surrounding Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, Christianity is one of the only religions where God speaks for himself out of the Bible, and so he's confirming himself himself. Other religions, you'll hear a lot about God, but you won't hear a word from God. In the Bible, you're hearing words directly from God. These words come from him. They speak out of it. They come out of his mouth. Jesus himself goes backwards. If you like, I like Jesus, I don't like the Old Testament. Jesus himself quotes from every Old Testament book in the New Testament but one. All of them. So Jesus himself saw the Old Testament scriptures as scriptures. Scripture writers saw each other's writing as a scripture, by the way. You might think, man, did they know each other was even... How did they know? I mean, didn't some council 400 years later kind of uh, put this whole book together? Like, how did they know? Well, actually, Peter talks about his friend Paul, both of them, both of whom wrote the Bible. And this is what he says. Second Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. Consider all that our Lord's patience brings salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave him. He wrote him with the wisdom God gave him. Verse 16. He writes this way in all his letters, speaking in them about such matters. Some of his parts of, of his letters are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? I mean, it's kind of hidden somewhere towards the back, but it's in there, right? Peter was alive the same time as Paul. They had met each other, and he does two things. He affirms Paul's writings as... Scripture. He says people twist, turn, and change the scriptures. Paul's words like the other scriptures. Then he does something else. He says some of Paul's words are hard to understand. You ever been confused by reading the Bible? No, nobody. It's San Francisco. No one can even admit it. No, I read the whole thing. It's fine. I just don't, don't agree with it. <laughs> it's confusing, right? It's very confusing. And Paul in particular, who writes the majority of the Old New Testament, he's particularly confusing. But don't worry, the guy who wrote the other part of the Bible says, yeah, I get it. He is actually very hard to understand. And actually, as my wife pointed out to me, this word hard to understand is really interesting because it can mean two things. It can mean we don't understand it, and it also mean, man, it's hard to understand. That sometimes actually God may be giving us a word that we don't agree with and don't like. But that actually, it's actually very difficult, hard to understand. The, the, um, 
the uh, disciples at one point said, these are hard sayings from Jesus who can understand them. Same thing he's saying here. It's okay to be confused. It's okay for God to, to say hard things to us and not get. But understand, the Bible understands that Paul is difficult to read. Okay? And then here's the last thing, guys, and this is the last thing I have for you. Our denial of the Scriptures actually may be heart-related. We've done a lot of Bible information here today. Hopefully you'll win some Bible Jeopardy coming up soon. Okay? <laughs> but sometimes it's not just about the information we have. We could also be suppressing the truth what Christians would say, suppressing the truth by our own broken and unrighteousness. The Bible teaches that sometimes the heart may be the issue, that sometimes it's not that we don't have enough information to make a decision, it's because we just don't want to make a decision. You know what, I've heard a lot about the Bible, I've studied it, but man, I just feel like I'm just not ready for it. Why? I don't know, it just, you may have a heart issue. It may not be a brain issue, it actually may be a heart issue. This also means that people can be part of Christianity and understand the Bible with their brains and not get it with their hearts. That's also possible. Look at what Jesus says here to the religious teachers in his day. John uh, chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures. That's the Bible. Remember the writings. You think that in them you have eternal life. You think just by knowing the Bible you'll be saved. And it is that they bear witness about me. You don't get that they're actually about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Man, you may know a lot about the Bible, but you don't know God. That can happen. Sometimes the problem isn't just the brain. Sometimes the problem is the heart. Now, you may be thinking, well, I just don't know if the Bible is sufficient to grasp humanity in and of itself. Well, I've just given you a lot of evidence or proof. Man, I would encourage you to get some books and study this more. But I will tell you, that the Bible even says that the words of the scriptures, as we understand them deeply, are sufficient for us to know God with our own hearts. There's a story at the, uh, in one of the Gospels where Jesus is telling a parable, and he said that the very rich man who was living a very affluent life, he in fact would ignore homeless people pretty often, and he would just live his good life, he would eat good food, and one day he dies, and he goes to hell. And he, in hell, gets a vision of heaven but he can't get there because there's a chasm, there's something blocking him. And he looks up and he sees Abraham, who's the father of the Israelite faith, and conversely the father of all of, the, of, all of Christianity as well. And he sees Abraham, and the, the, the man in hell knows he can't get through, and so he starts pleading, pleading with Abraham, Abraham, I want you to help with my, my five brothers. And he says, for I have five brothers, let him warn them. Go warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He does not want them to, to go to hell. And here's what Abraham's response is. He says, verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. He's saying Moses and the prophets, the law and the writings, they have the scriptures. And the guy says, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. And then Abraham said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus is telling this story before he dies. Jesus is telling this story knowing the ramifications of it. That all scripture is breathed by God and profitable. That it is living, breathing words that change the way people see the world through them. It's a different book. And if they don't believe the book, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe them. It's not about a miracle to convince anybody. It's not a brain mechanism that will convince somebody. It's a heart change that leads people to Jesus. If you're convinced and trying to, if you're, if you're confused and trying to figure out 
Like, okay, what's the next step? Because I feel like that was a lot of information. You have to answer, I think just ask yourself this one question, just one question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Ask yourself that question. It's a common question people use. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Now, if the answer is yes, now you might, you might be honest something. Now, if the answer is no, now you know where your problem lies. You know it's not a brain problem. You know it's a heart problem. Because oftentimes, it's not about what we know to be true. It's just what we want to do at our core. And the truth is, you can win debates all day about what the Bible is and if it's true or if it's not, but the only thing that really matters is that a living, breathing God, Jesus, meets you and your heart is changed. And he comes and counters you, takes the heart of, of defiant brokenness from us all and gives us a heart of flesh, that one that loves him and is about his business. This is what we're seeking in our lives. All of the different things that we try to build to craft our I think statements, to form our giant tower of I think, and to present it to the world as if we know what we're talking about, it's actually a lot smaller of a mountain than what God's mountain is. It's far smaller, and it's far and more insufficient. It will only last another 40 or 50 or 60 years. But grass withers and, and flowers fade away, but the word of the Lord never goes away. We have truth and comfort in that. So my encouragement to you is to ask this question. If, I, if Christianity were true, would I become a Christian? And then seek your answer. Let's pray.